Hi there, this is Ari Stein, and you're listening to the 52 Insights Podcast. So much of art today is filled with a distinct type of theatricality. The more melodramatic your work, the greater its impact and influence it becomes. From Damien Hirst to Ai Weiwei, certain pieces can dominate the narrative. One artist who stands out amidst the landscape of spectacle is the enigmatic Argentinian visionary Tomás Saracino. Saracino transcends mere spectacle, using his work as a powerful instrument to inspire, educate and influence. His relentless pursuit has led him into a partnership with the mysterious, at times otherworldly and very ancient species, the spider, revealing profound insights about our delicate place within the cosmos. Now firmly established as a tier one artist, Saracino skillfully weaves impactful narratives that captivate and resonate. What sets his work apart is his profound grasp of the urgency and challenges faced by humanity. Instead of imposing his opinions upon you, he extends a gentle invitation into his orb-like world, leaving you in a state of awe. This is not an entirely new concept. Indigenous communities have long possessed an intuitive understanding of our interconnectedness with nature. However, what sets Tomas apart is his desire to rekindle this intuitive understanding and bring it into the vast and impersonal realm of commercial galleries. If you have yet to experience one of Saracino's expansive exhibitions, you are truly missing out. In this conversation, you have moments where you feel like you're conversing with a child. At times difficult to demand his attention, he remains playfully curious, punctuating the dialogue with mischievous chuckles. During our chat, Tomas delves into this new science he has developed around spiders, his experiences with ayahuasca, his childhood. He reflects on his thoughts regarding chat GPT and technology and passionately discusses why our perception of the green economy is fundamentally flawed. If you'd like to stay updated on future episodes, please subscribe to our podcast by signing up to my newsletter and connecting with me on social media. And let me know what you think of this latest interview. And now, without further ado, here is my interview with the extraordinary Tomas Saracino. Tomas Saracino, welcome to the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you. I am quite thrilled to have you here today. Your work has inspired and captivated and enchanted many, including myself. The first time we crossed paths was in Florence, actually, in one of the world's major hotspots at the earliest part of the pandemic in 2020 in Florence. And me and my wife actually had the courage to fly to Italy and check out some of the tourist hotspots. And we came across some of your work and we wanted to uh, jump in and learn more about what you're doing. And if I remember correctly, it was at the Aria Museum. We were utterly amazed, to be honest, by the sheer grandeur and beauty of these, what you would call spider-inspired inf- infrastructures that you created. And I think for me, it was the the sheer metaphorical depth that I think left a profound impression on me. What I got out of it was that you wanted to remind people there is no distinction between nature and ourselves and that we all sit in the same cosmic web, so to speak. 
it was clear that we were in the presence of a profound thinker and practitioner. So the Guardian, for all its problems of today, has described you as a an artist, scientist, activist, philosopher, inventor, composer, a Renaissance mind for the 21st century. There's quite a flattering comparison. But you don't look like Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for the invitation and thank you for uh, for having seen some of the of the works. I have to think how the spider will thank you to have come and experienced some of the amazing works. And Palazzo Strozzi, yeah, right before the pandemic has started. And today for, for trying to understand, and I hope so, and it's hard to describe also my work because it's the work of the spiders, but maybe an analogy that could be used is uh, the analogy that many people think, oh, I'm, I'm very curious about the spider, but then I, I kind of continue pointing out that the spider webs is what always have fascinated me. But the analogy that I was thinking was a little bit to refer again about how sometimes part of humanity have constructed this division between what we do and what, what we are. No, it's like, a, and sometimes it could be defined, but sometimes there is a problem in, in that way of, of describing. In this case, you know, the, for myself and for many others, the spider web is part of the body of the spider. You cannot disentangle. A very simple analogy might be when the spider is, and not all spiders weave webs, but for the ones who weave webs, until they are not able to weave their own web, they will not be able to eat. This means they're weaving their own mouths for them, by the extent, being able to sense and perceive and feed themselves, eat themselves, no? It's been, you know, it's a little bit like, maybe the way of describing my work is like a working collaboration, no? And this exhibition of the serpent, I think this is one of the biggest ambitions that I have been trying together with the spider and with many other humans and non to weave this relationship. But you are an artist, first and foremost. <laughs> yes. I mean, what, what I always try to think is like, yes, of course, but at the same time, I'm a spider and I'm a spider web. And I could be in so many other disciplines at the same time. What I'm trying to say, sometimes the comfort zone of the disciplinary trap that humanity is falling at the same time may be mm. also one of the problems of the situation that the majority of population are suffering from the minority of understanding the world the way it is. I understand. I don't think people realize just the depths or the profound love, uh, the symbiotic relationship that you have with these beautiful creatures. And some people wouldn't call them beautiful. I mean, I grew up with them in Australia and we're taught to be very fearful of them because the ones that sit in your house are quite dangerous. They usually fall into two categories. I had a a more suspicious relationship with spiders, but people don't realize how much it's inspired you. Maybe you can talk about the origination of this relationship and what makes such an inspiration for you. Yeah, I think so. And there's so many cultures that still suffer from these phobias, no? it's, it's called arachnophobia. And I think there's so much unfounded. I think so today we should be much more afraid about cars, about fossil fuels about a way of, of sustaining mode of lives which are in danger so many forms of life. This mean, and I think so also by statistic, if you count how many people die out of a bite of a spider, I think so in the last 10 years, one or two person. Yeah. And it's the same with sharks because we kill enormous amounts of sharks. They're very beautiful creatures as well. Absolutely. This means that, but at the same time, and put in favor also, in, in the perspective, the exhibition is also 
how many other alive sculptures, sculpture cultures, mm-hmm. <laughs> are today still uh, alive around the planet who do not suffer from blasphobia, right? And it's been, it started with this, with uh, Bolo, a spider diviner from Somie, Cameroon, who, who think about spiders as a source of divination. And the spiders are, are kind of like in India, the cows are a holy, while in Argentina we slaughter and eat the like, with merciless. This mean, I think so. Again, when you ask me my fascination, how I started is not so much about the spider in itself, but about the spider web. I was living in a very old house in Italy during the young age, from two years old to 12. And then in the attic of the house, I always liked to go upstairs. And it seems that nobody was living there because maybe some old bags. But actually, it was always fascinating because it was full of spider webs. And then you could find also webs. And then it was a classic image that sometimes I try to refer in my exhibition, seeing these spider webs uh, illuminated by the shutters and the sun coming through and seeing almost like, as you refer to a cosmic web. Sure. But for people that are listening to this, can you explain a little bit about what you do? Because I can do it, but you can do it much better. Meaning when I was in the exhibition in Florence, I don't know what's happening at your major unveiling at the Serpentine at the moment called Webs of Life. But what I saw were webs that could almost they were alive. They were manufacturing their own silk in an orb as you move through the exhibition. And that was the artwork in itself. And you wanted to change our perspective on the nature of this incredible species. What's happening at the Serpentine? Is it of a similar nature? Yes. At, at the Serpentine, there are many spider webs which have been weaved by many different species of spider. Each spider have its own kind of archetype, its own particular type of web. The more known is the orb weaver, which is concentrical and have some kind of radial uh, composition. But there are so many, many other types of, of webs. And what you could see in, in, in the exhibition are these open webs, right, where many spiders who have been living at the Serpentine uh, much before this exhibition have started are also invited to continue to weave webs on top of other webs. And when it happened, in these type of hybrid webs that you don't understand really where the work of a spider start and the other work of another type of mm. spider with another web. And it's been, it kind of reminds us a little bit about this possibility of a coexistence, no? how we should entangle ourselves or some cultures need to re-entangle to try to have this ability. And in this case, it's kind of an, it's an analogy no? of how, how much respect so many spiders have on the work that yeah. other spiders have with. Can you... For us, shed one shed light on one captivating discovery that you've made about this species that put you in a state of awe. Yeah, I think it's uh, is again is is performing in in different fields at the same time and and try to weave them together. When we talk about discovering, it seems again it brought us to the realm of more science in the way that sometimes uh, we think. And again, what exhibition tries is try to do. A kind of equilibrated. Yes, I was for many years, let's say, guided sometimes by, by the inheritance from my family that is mostly based on, on scientific research from physics to meteorology to biology, my father, my mother, agriculture. And then you know, what exhibition also is kind of weave that mode of thinking together with other mode of thinking, as I mentioned, the spider diviner, 
But let's say one of the way of observing, let's say at the beginning, um, was the capacity of, of thinking that the spider web could have a kind of a relationship with a cosmic web. And this mean kind of discovery that somehow science also has advanced quite a bit, I think so, due to, to this question that I have posed, no? which it, it kind of, I read also in many cosmological and astrophysicists always try to, to explain how right after the Big Bang, kind of at the origin of the universe, the geometry of these galactic pets uh, are composed. And one of the analogies that they use is always about the geometry of a three-dimensional spider web. For that extent, being curious about the cosmos and the terrestrial, I thought, well, that might be much more simple to try to think about it. And then I found out that these really complex three-dimensional webs, they were never being studied at the depth that really you could measure every single segment, how many nodes exist in these complex three-dimensional webs. And then I started wandering around, okay, if an MRI, a computer tomography scan, might be able to reproduce this. And I find out that I banged the doors in many hospitals with many arachnologists around the world trying to help if we may be able to reproduce that. Find out it was not even a machine that was able to read the thickness of a spider web because it's a thousand of a millimeter, very, very thin. Well, MRI and all of the other have a, a thickness which is much more thick. And then I, I together with uh, spending days and months to try to devise how this mechanism could be produced. And then I work also with a computer tomography department in Darmstadt. At the time, I was living in Frankfurt. And then one of the discoveries that, that I did is was with the lasers, just like a, instead of a pointer, a sheet laser, you could run through the web and you could illuminate the whole different points of the web. And by this, then you will take uh, with two cameras, photogrammetry system, every section, every time that you move the laser, one millimeter, you take a picture. And by this system, then we were able to kind of invent this machine and then being able to reconstruct in three dimension this very complex web. Now, this method was quite uh, successful, you know, we, we, then we started to publish in, in scientific magazines and the Max Planck Institute, group animal behavior came to my studio. They were interested in the, the methods that we have invented. Then we received, started to receive PhD students to teach them and to try to understand behavior and how the shape of the web, it changed in relation with behavior of different groups of solitary or social spiders. Then they became the MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And then also they started to reproduce these machines. I was uh, coaching them. And then I entered slowly more into the vibration of the webs and how much to think about a spider playing a very complex harp. And then we develop another a very sensitive microphone, which was not existing in the market. And with that, we start to open up an archive of how spiders communicate one to each other with something which, you know, was kind of a, it's kind of a still novel way of, of communicating in science, which is called biotremology. And by that also, we keep publishing also in many other scientific magazines. But this also is always accompanied also with a music performance. We keep inviting musicians to try to play with the spider and build ensembles, which not necessarily are non-human, but also embrace the non-human. So essentially what you're saying is you developed a novel laser in conjunction with other cross-disciplinary researchers. Yeah. And you found a way to measure the spider web in a way that hadn't been done before, almost like in a 3D formation. Yeah. And that led you to make specific 
undertakings or research about species, especially about their social habits and whatnot? Yes, one could say that. I mean, it's like a kind of, um, I invented a new, let's say, MRI, <laughs> you know. Yeah, for spiders. For spider webs. And it's because the spider webs are very, very complex. You know, the geometry that we are talking not about the orb weaver, but we are talking about these uh, sheet webs, these uh, funnel, tunnels. Yeah. Like, um, and then there was no machine who will be able to really digitalize and being able to measure precisely. And for that extent, then maybe the scientists also could be more precise and to think if that geometry is something which might resemble or not the origin of the universe, right? And then that was one of the things. And then the other contribution is also this important is this uh, uh, microphone, which is very, very sensitive, which is able to pick up vibration of the web as no other instrument could have done before. Uh, we tried a laser vibrometer and many other current uh, state-of-the-art instrument, but they were not at the quality and what it needs to understand the vibration of spider webs. But are you saying you've picked up an almost a way that they are communicating? Is there evidence for this? Well, what we did now is kind of a, we kind of start to build this kind of archive of different type of vibration from different species. And then we have uploaded on Twitter that are accessible also for many different scientists. And then what we do is trying to kind of slowly try to think about which vibration might stimulate certain type of, sometimes you could call it courtship relationship between two uh, different species or from the same species. Sometimes you can think about some vibration related to the checking the integrity of the web. You have to remember that many spiders who weave webs, they are almost blind. They do not see this marvel that we are able to admire, but they perceive all the environment through vibration without they still have eyes, but they're very, very poor in visions. Yeah. There are other spiders which do not weave webs, like the jumping spider, who have amazing Eight eyes. cells yeah. of vision. But specifically, the one who weave web, the majority are very, very poor on the vision. It's mean they're able to detect when a mosquito will touch one corner of the web, they be able to orientate themselves and go and, yeah. and yeah. touch it. Yeah. But also, you know, it's a little bit also when we work with a lot of biologists and people from the science, it's always also stretch a bit the questions. It's like it's always have a certain call and response. How much a spider want to play music just for the shake to play music and it enjoy the vibration that is produced, right? This mean, oh, it's always a male or female which is call and response when it comes to the time of courtship. It's mean, you know, through the art and through having also maybe other mode of perception, we have also articulated that many scientists start to ask questions which maybe will not be necessary within their own mode of, of looking or perceiving other things. Yeah. I, I'm not Joe Rogan, so I'm not going to spend um, talking about spiders as much as they absolutely fascinate me. <laughs> I love what you're talking about. We only have limited time. I want to know what you were like as a kid. Uh, you said you grew up in Italy from 2 to 12. Yeah. You strike me as a significantly curious person and someone that asks many questions. Tell me what you were like. Just before I enter to the next question, I know we have limited time, but uh, you know what I realized then later, you know, and I follow all this path of science, of understanding, of appreciation, of inventing machine devices with a with precision, let's say, of science. But then what, what I came to realize that actually there are cultures we have been talking with the spiders for thousands and thousands of years. 
without all the technological baggage that somehow science today is trying to understand the world of the spider, which at the same time is the cause also maybe of sustaining and maintaining a certain form of lives which are bringing the verge of extinction or this monopolization of knowledge also and how much is owned and then distributed. We know also what it means, biopiracy and all that, that form of, of, of aggregating knowledge. And that was, I mean, for me, revelatory and also what I think so what an exhibition of the Serpent and, and many others you could notice is trying to balance that that's not the only way of knowing, right? And then at the beginning of the exhibition, you place, and we, we have invited uh, Bolo, Pierre Bolo, a spider diviner from Cameroon, who is able to talk with the spider through a vibration by begging a small stone on top of a, of a metal pot. And in that way, it can ask a question to the spider through vibration. The spider will answer between one, two, three, four, five days. And all the answers we have been posed have been um, right uh, from, from understanding uh, which next president will be elected in the United States, checking question, are we here or not, and so forth. This mean, what you know is, is how much relationship or balance we need today in the world trying to understand that mode of knowing and trying to really respect that mode of knowing. So the spiders has chosen Donald Trump, right? No, it was for the second re-election. And then they were asking if, he, if Donald Trump was being re-elected and was not. Okay, good. For all my sake, I, I thank the spiders for giving me the divination. Absolutely, absolutely. There is a, for, for those out there that are listening, there is a website, I actually checked it out, where you can actually send if you're not at the exhibition. And I checked you can pay up to, I think, what is it, 380 euros if you want a video signed and sealed and delivered from a, a spider diviner in Cameroon. You can ask them a question and it does take up to a while to get that. But going back to the question about you. But thank you. Thank you for posing because I think so this is crucial and fundamental also to help to maintain. I mean, all the fonts are set by the diviners. We just have helped them to design the web page. And this means their practice is their mode of knowing and all that will be directly commissioned to the question to the spider. And this will help to sustain and maintain their practice, which is different of other mode of of knowing and the village also because it helped the whole community. Thank you. So what were you like as a child? <laughs> uh, well, I like to go up to the attic, no? I mean, that was something which I, I quite remember all the time going up there and steering the, the window and see this. When the light goes through the shutter, no, the sun, you see all these particles floating into the atmosphere, right? It's been for me the jump, you know, when I grow up of thinking like, and then usually illuminate is amazing spider webs, right? And then, you know, it was the dust floating, the spider web there, and who was living really at the house, no? You know, when, when then you, you know, you confront and then you learn that spider had been on the planet since almost 300 million years, and human only 200,000 years, not even a third of a million. And science sometimes tell us that minimum for a species to know how to live in a place is to have been living for at least 5 million years. I think so there is a long way for humans to learn from the spiders because they've been for, a, yeah. for quite a bit around, no? And this means who was living at the house, I think so. That was a little bit a question that I keep there. But were you, I'm trying to get to a little bit of more about you and your personality. Were you a, did you misbehave? Were you curious? Did you spend many hours in nature, outside? Were you a social child? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> No, I remember that I will always have this, uh, how you call it, when when you 
wake up at night and you start to walk around the house and then you are half awake and half asleep. Mm. And then my parents, they were worried. It says like, hey, you know, and then they were pouring me water, trying to wake me up because I, we wandered around all the house without being conscious in, in which world I, I was, right? And then the other one, what I, what I could say is like, you know, my family was always living a little bit different countries, no? I mean, I was born in Argentina, for, and after uh, one year and a half, two years, I was there. My, my family was, uh, my father was in prison because there was this very uh, cruel dictatorship period in Argentina. And this means, uh, luckily, he had an Italian passport, and then was, we were sent all to Italy. And then when 83 came back to the democratic government, and 86, my family decided, was first allowed to go back, and then was recognized all the injustice that I have to them. And this means, was always a little bit also kids sometimes bullying me on, oh, but you are not Italian, but you are not Argentina, but you are not, there's sometimes the missing of the, the belonging from a, from a community. And, you know, that maybe is something that I could share. So you grew up trying to understand the world around you. You came across spiders early on in the around 2010, 2011. And now you spend a lot of the time on your work using spiders as a metaphor, perhaps for our disproportionate relationship with nature. And you talk a lot about climate change and the looming catastrophe we face. Is that right? Yeah. I think so spiders are using me. Let's say be more humble. If they're here since we said 300 million years and we only 200,000, I think so. I would rather prefer that they have a certain spider intelligence that go well beyond our own. But I think so we collaborate. I read to put it on that way. And I hope so. It's a fair collaboration. It's a fair collaboration not only amongst me and the spider, the spider myself, but also to all the ones who love uh, spiders and hopefully to convert more arachnophobics to arachnophilics. <laughs> yeah, arachnophilics. Do you think that the theatricality of your work is helpful? What I'm trying to ask by this is when you walk through your work, you're more enamored by the scope and the magic of what you're creating. And I'm less contemplating the ecosystem, the environment, the looming climate catastrophe. I'm not sure I get any of that from the design of the exhibition. Do you think sometimes with, and I'm asking a, a contentious question, with people like Ai Weiwei or Oliver Eliasson, they tend to lean a little bit too much on the theatricality and not enough direct in their message. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's difficult to yeah, to separate it because I'm, one of the things that also we have been trying to expand and just to put it a bit maybe even more complex, the question is like, you know, what one of the key questions is like, who are the visitors of the exhibition? And this means I'm always guessing like how theatrically it might be a certain exhibition and which condition are set or the spider themselves feel comfortable enough or then weave more web on top of the web. And this means this came like a, just this a very fresh news that uh, like three days ago, uh, the curator Lizzie and Chris from the exhibition at the Serpent, and they told me that two spiders have started to weave webs on top of the webs that we brought. And then they are laying a small egg sac, and we are expecting that spiderlings will be born during time of the exhibition. This means we have set, I mean, this means the condition of the theatricality the visitors or the participants, let's put it that way, seeing this exhibition allows the exhibition to continue, to, be, to become more alive. To Their presence is 
is respected enough. I mean, it's true when you enter sometimes this exhibition and it's illuminated, there is this kind of a source of, of a magic moment. You look with a completely wonder and the voice goes down and then people tend to be much more quiet. Hey, it's almost for the one who are religions, maybe it's almost into a spiritual moment of, of contemplation. But what is at the core of that is then it allows also to have no not such a noise pollution that then spiders will not also being able to they suffer a lot also spiders from the noise pollution that cities from also like air pollution that, that you see they cannot eat the web because then later the head is the air the web is all full from particular matter. This mean I don't know if I answered directly the question, but but somehow you know in, in the other rooms you know we're inviting dogs, we have made painting for dogs, which is olfactory painting because actually dogs do not not have so much attention on the visual aspect. This mean it's all the time kind of weaving that that relationship. Yeah. I think what I was trying to get at was you want to walk away a climate activist, but that's not necessarily what happens. We are living in a in a time right now where galleries and artists sometimes need each other to create these the majority of the works where it started was an idea and a story and a political message, but then it kind of loses its effect. That doesn't take away from your incredible work. I'm just saying that can be something to think about. But for me, Thomas, what's really important is that we sit and we are quiet and we take in the natural surroundings. I know that you you have spiritual elements in your life and you want this to come through in your work. I myself have been meditating for almost 13 years and you build this muscle in your mind of empathy, of awareness, of compassion and growth, and not enough of us are doing that. And so it also depends on the visitor coming through your work. Have they done the work to enjoy the work, <laughs> so to speak? So I'm asking you, what are the spiritual elements in your life that has contributed you to making such beautiful, natural, defining work? I must say that, yes, as you mentioned, meditation was very crucial. I think it was, yes, seven or eight years ago, a bit more, that I started. And that was one part which was really kind of sometimes, let's say, like kind of a, and mostly when I did this, uh, you know, retreat of, uh, it's called Vipassana, where for 10 days you're in complete silence without access to uh, books or, of course, no mobile phone. And you cannot write also. You cannot read. <laughs> you, you, you cannot talk with other people. You're in completely silent for 12 or 13, 14 hours per day meditating. I think so that have also sparked quite of a bit. The other and also when it comes more about is vibration things also, I think so. Once I, I did a course of, uh, with, with, you know, kind of, a, they call it a medicine from ayahuasca in Argentina. And also that allows me sometimes to enter into kind of, let's say, I don't want to call it lexonic, but it's more vibratory kind of milieu that then later, you know, enter more and more into a perception of this uh, very tiny vibration. And then, uh, yeah, and then, it, I mean, when you go to the spiritual, I mean, I'm, I'm not Catholic, I'm, I'm not a, like a religious person in that sense, but I always was uh, confronted a little bit with this other form of belief. No, For, let's say in the exhibition, there is from one side a spider diviner in Cameroon who have this mode of thinking, and then in the other corner, there is a repurposed old confessional from a Catholic church that when I found it on the internet was on Seoul, I saw that in the place of the priest, there were a lot of spider webs. And it's mean, I thought that, you know, knowing all this mode of vibration, how spiders communicate with each other, 
then we have repurposed the confessional and then now mm. the spider is at the place of the priest. And I, and I don't know if there is such a coincidence or not, but Friday, this week, I'm going to see the Pope, uh, Francis, in Rome. Oh, wow. I received an invitation from him. That I Please tell him I said hi. <laughs> and then I said, oh my God, some, some coincidence that might happen here. What was your experience like on ayahuasca? Well, it was this amazing, this moment of, of you know, that leaves sometimes will talk to me. You know what I mean? And the very tiny movement of these leaves will will be able to communicate that, you know, all what is this kind of inanimate that it seems like a stone is not able to talk, like the web is not able to come. Everything was alive and everything was able to, to talk one to each other. And, and I was feeling part of that conversation also, you know, and even my, my body will get out of my body and participate in, in other ways. This it was kind of really mind expanding. And, 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 you know, from them, I start to also questioning this, what, how much we, through science, uh, we define what is alive and what not, you know what I mean? Always, you know, I was fascinated by Carl Sagan and this Lynn Margulis and all with the, the Gaia theory and, and James Lovelock. And also when you see from other form of knowing, you know, animism, and how so many cultures today are able to weave other type of relationship. Let's not forget, you know, that 5% of the world today are considered First Nation people or, or indigenous communities. And these are the ones who are able to maintain and preserve 80% of the biodiversity on the planet. This mean, and then we are looking for a solution of how we could live more sustainable. Look, if the 80% of the biodiversity is maintained with their form of life, with their lifestyle, you just have to a little bit be a bit more respectful sometimes to their form of knowing that it seems to have been really not. I actually interviewed James Lovelock many years ago about the Gaia theory. And I remember I asked him, what do you think of Elon Musk? And this was when there was a lot of news about him trying to get to Mars or to terraform a planet or, or do some cosmic traveling. And his instantaneous response was, Elon Musk is an idiot. The earth is such a beautiful planet for us to inhabit. Why would you want to leave? So we have more than enough to sustain us here. But yeah. one of the things that you explore and you've talked about in many interviews is this idea of the pursuit of the green revolution. And it's riddled with inherent contradictions. And what I mean by that is you've spoken about in your own home country, this incessant need, this drive to extract new natural resources. Now, we need electrification of everything, electric houses, electric cars, electric offices, and it's created the lithium triangle. And that's only one place in Africa, they're doing the same. While striving for sustainability, we also seem unable to quell our desires for more. So with the electrification, we're simply going to move ourselves outside planetary boundaries of growth. Still, harnessing the greediness of, of capitalism. Do you think we can find contentment in simply not wanting? Yeah, no. Well, this is what I hope. <laughs> and I think so what the exhibition also, it tried. For me, was one of the, the biggest confrontation because sometimes, you know, art, it seems as, as a possibility of, of changing, but sometimes we, we put it also in a category that uh, of a level of consumption of it, of the way of how it's been seen and how it's framed, that then later when we kind of dislocate out of this frame also, it kind of, it kind of just, it, it plays its own contradiction. And that was, you know, I think so what we tried to do at the Serpent. And, you know, we said, well, 
There are some movies which consume electricity. There are some spider webs which are illuminated by artificial source of lights. And I mean, we, we very easily said, okay, that's the energy consumption of the show. There are different modes, 3.2 kilowatt hour, 2.1 and 1.4. And this means what we are able to do is like to dim down the amount of energy in relationship with the amount of sun, which is above the serpentine because we have placed solar panels also. It's been, it's like how much the show we can degrow. It's been, if it's, there is one week of no sun in London, many of the artwork will not be visible and will not be accessible. While there are many others that, yes, still are, but some will switch off. And it's, been, it's like, can we accept also that there are certain alteration in the way of how we perceive and, and see the world that is deeply entangled also with how much energy can be produced on site, right? Mm. And without carbon offsetting or saying, well, or greenwashing and say, well, uh, you know what I mean? Because the, the classic is like, well, the energy transition, what it does, or uh, getting electric car is already part of a society who have a car. And as a luxury, we add another car, which is an electric, right? And it's, I mean, what it does, it consumes more for the one who have the capacity already and has already yeah. a, a certain level of, of life. And it's, I mean, you know, it's a little bit for me, at least, I mean, without. Is how much the exhibition also can shrink and can turn in the powers, you know, where it can somehow also contribute without the arrogance to say, well, I'm talking about overconsumption, but we keep the show running 24-7, right? And it's, I mean, I think that was a little bit something, I mean, as in an attempt, I don't think so, like, it is possible and, and it was fully successful. But I think so, you know, it's, it's give it a try, right? And at the same time, you know, all the movie and all this exposes exactly this. Yeah, but I guess this is what I'm saying, going back to the meditation piece, is that if you meditate enough, you're aware of the wanting because that creates the suffering. You know this from your work with Vipassana. And so in a society that expects you to constantly want and crave things, yeah. I don't see any way that we can solve the climate crisis unless we do a majority of work on ourselves, which can eliminate that suffering, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, so, I mean, so ridiculous. I'm thinking about Elon Musk. I'm saying, you know, and he, now he's worried about artificial intelligence and so forth and so on. I mean, one of the wealthiest person on planet Earth, uh, you know, there are, I think, so between 10 and 15 families and individual person who hold the economical power of 50% of the entire world. And yeah. if you're worried about yeah. one of them, it's worried about the well-being of humanity, why you don't share your income, pay fair taxes, instead to try, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so simple. And because, I mean, the, the ambition yeah. of, I mean, you know, then we can frame all the degrowth and what has happened is investments. In. Part of my work, aside from running the magazine, I also program a, a very big technology festival in London. So I put a lot of discussions together about the latest trends in artificial intelligence yeah. and technology. I know you have some interest there. I'm very interested to know someone who's curious and has opinions on things. What are your thoughts on technologies like ChatGPT? Have you used it or artificial intelligence? Do you think there is a way that it can impact human knowledge and our understanding of our own existence? Has it come at a time in our story on earth that is opportune? Yeah, I think so, yes. And, and just also to bring it back also to the exhibition in London, because sure. half of the exhibition you are not able to see it if you enter with your mobile phone. We ask you right at the beginning that your lithium repository 
in your pocket because it's part of the narrative that we are facing. It should be left sure. at the end. What I'm trying to think is like a technology per se is if it's not embedded within a ideology with a kind of a political agenda, uh, we cannot judge it if it's good or bad. Right? A knife cut, can kill a person or a knife can cut an apple. I mean, is in the in the hands of who this technology, who owned that technology, how much is patented, how much is accessible to people, how much is distributed and who benefit out of this technology. And I think so today what we see is like a, the latest advancement in technology, not as was in other moments in times in history, but I think so when we think about the internet and now even with the chat GPT and, and all of that advancement, we see that less and less individuals are the ones who are benefit from that technology. And this means it became really detrimental, you know, for the majority of people on earth and not only of people, but the entire ecosystem, like plants and animals and so forth. And this means I think so that technology, it needs to have a much more embedded accompaniment from, from government, from policymakers and from tax payments and all of that. Have you tried ChatGPT? Yes. And it's quite unbelievable for certain things. It's unbelievable. But it made me completely scary of saying like, you know, at the end of the day, this will bring more inequality, more racism, more all what we have seen already, what internet is bringing us, that somehow the level of inequality, the amount of wealth and mass in very few people never have been seen before in history of, of this planet, right? And it's so dangerous as having an atomic bomb, because if people who have not democratically been appointed have the economical and now the political leverage and power to disrupt the whole uh, political system of country, that's <laughs> explosive as the needs of banned certain technology, the, the atomic energy, right? As I mean, I think so we should really, really pay quite of attention, but not distract us through the technology itself. I think so. The, what we have to look is like, it cannot be that only few individuals on the planet Earth have that amount of economy. That's the more, the case of the more dangerous thing that today we have seen. And, 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 and they are able to, to disrupt, you know, see what happened with Brexit, with Facebook and so forth. So thinking about the future, what is your roadmap now? You have opened this webs of life at the Serpentine. What is your next area of exploration? The drive for important, urgent stories and discussion and dialogue and awareness from artists is more important than ever. What is it that you want to say next? Oh, well, I hardly I can think these days more that what has happened among two or three people have died in Argentina due to the repressive government in the north of Argentina, Jujuy. One of the persons who came for the opening is Veronica Chavez and Natividad Vital. And both of them are featured in the movie that is central space of the exhibition. Both are, are the voices that I think are so crucial and fundamental that the West, the global North, needs to hear them. And these voices are today in danger. This means I'm fully committed now, day and night. I spent all weekend here not knowing what to do, how to help, how to really portray a government which is bringing so much injustice. And I'm calling hands to recoveries. I'm bringing a letter from the community to the Pope. I'm trying to use all, even the social media as injustice as it is, is trying to spread the news. I said yesterday we post some videos, I've been banned. And it means I'm only fully committed. I'm, I'm happy that James Cameron, the famous film director, went to Argentina, 
with an idea of greenwashing to saying, oh, the Triangle of Liteos is wonderful, with the governor, uh, Gerardo Morales, trying to portray an economic moral system, which was completely wrong. We managed to talk with James Cameron. James Cameron, between one day and the other one, have turned completely his understanding. He's supporting the communities. We have made it to the 40 different news from Washington Post to El Pais. And this means I hope so the Pope now will bring a lot of more, mm. more air and voice to that community, which are uh, incredible suffering from the, from the hyperconsumption and, and from modes of life, which I'm also participating in. I'm hoping we will really change. Yeah. So if, if Tim Cook is listening to this, I'm not sure that this podcast is on his weekly or monthly listening habit, but if he is, I'm sure he'll uh, do some research or examination. Full disclosure, Thomas, I used to work for Apple. And actually, when I worked for Apple, they told me that I could never talk about Foxconn. Uh, I don't know if you remember this big mm. disaster that happened. And there were people working in the factories. They had nets around the buildings. So many people were committing suicide. So I think that's why it's important that artists are opening up these, these minds, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Artists, but... Artists sometimes are very self and ego centered, and it's all about them. I think so. What we are trying to delude a little bit, maybe the idea of what an artist could be. Maybe we are a mixture of a of a, of a spider weaving <laughs> better entanglements in a world that urgently need to to loosen a little bit our comfort zone of of mm. the discipline real. No, and try to. And that was. I mean, we asked me what is next. Is I think so. I learned so much out of the exhibition of really collaborating with so many from lawyers to activists to mm. indigenous community. And I hope so that that's the change and, and the, net, the, the different constellation of relationship that hopefully will help us to, to move forward. Yeah, well, you've certainly uh, shifted my mindset. And after speaking with you, I think it's, it's incredible and wonderful, the work that you're doing. And it's a powerful instrument art and it can be and i think it's great the work that you're doing you continue to tell people the things that keep you up at night so so i I thank you thomas for your time and speaking with me thank you very much harry thank you it was a pleasure i wish all the best and i hope so we meet in person one moment i would love to one day i would love to put a face to a spider (laughs) fantastic hey there this is ari stein and you've been listening to the 52 insights podcast Thank you to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and to bearvalue.com for their production work. Make sure you to sign up to my newsletter on my website and subscribe to my podcast on Apple and Spotify to get notifications of when my next podcast will drop.